Dear listener, welcome to the show. What show? Viral! For all of our wonderful listeners out there, and for those of you that are new to the show, this is Viral. If you didn't also hear that in the, uh, you know. Intro. Into, into the intro. intro. Wow, that was beautiful. I thought we were really going to be there together. But. So sorry to leave you hanging. So, Megan, what are we talking about today? Today, we are going to continue with our aforementioned theme of fat phobia. Mm-hmm. The last time we talked a lot about our own personal stories with fat phobia and how we came to be public health practitioners mm-hmm. within our own story of living in bodies that are interpreted sometimes as fat, fat of center. Mm-hmm. Today, we want to continue that theme and talk about if we understand fat phobia, if we've done work personally and also in our professional public health lives to understand it as a system of oppression and harm, how can we take those learnings and translate them into a public health practice that is restorative. Oh, I love it. But first. But first. Olfactory pleasure. Bliss. Bliss. Joy. Joy. Right. Okay. So Yankee Candle Corner. Yankee Candle Corner. Corner, corner, Yankee Candle. Today. Scent? scent? I was just saying. Scents that make sense. (gasps) Oh. Oh my God. Sense that makes sense. Love it. Yankee Candle Corner. Today, we are highlighting Bayside Cedar. Oh, lovely. As our scent. A spicy blue candle. Oh, with blue some, is, yeah. Blue's kind of um, surprising. Right? Blue is often very beachy. This is not. This is a warm, rich, deep flavor. Earthy. That's right. So top note. The initial mm-hmm. impression, as we know, bergamot. Oh, I love that smell. Green pear. Oh, not not brown. No, the green ones. And grapefruit, right? Oh, kind of citrusy. There's a citrus vibe here in the citrusy studio today. Citrusy Christmas. Oh, oh, that lands. Yeah. Middle note, main body, mandarin blossom. Okay. Not the fruit you see. Okay. <laughs> the blossom. Just the flower. Right? And water lily. What does a water lily smell like? Mm. Swamp? I- I don't know. <laughs> well, they Good. make it, they make it, yeah, they make it, what did you say? Warm Christmas? Earthy warm, Christmas? Warm Christmas. Warm. Oh, God. Warm Christmas warm in Christmas. a swamp. So Florida. Oh, my God. In- that land, that, but that's too close. Yeah. That hurts. All right, base note, final lingering impression, which is, I think, where we're both at. Amber. Ooh, yeah. Cedar wood. I love cedar. And our all-time favorite, musk. <laughs> <laughs> you know how I feel about musk. <laughs> it just—it's a very vague term for a lot of different smells on a spectrum of I'm gonna throw up to. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know. Yeah, it's the last one. Yeah. So we'll bury that lead. Sure. Cool. Moving on. Moving on. Fat now that we've phobia. set right. the smell mood. Yes. The smell mood. Yeah. The scent scene. Ooh, the scent scene. <laughs> I like that. We've entered, we have set the scent scene. Mm. Let's get into it. All right. So. Fun shit. When we talk about anti-fatness, 
like Megan has said before, you know, we really talked about our own personal stories, but now we want to really think about this as how do we apply it to practice, especially from a macro level. So thinking about policy, thinking about research, thinking about just more large concept public health practices. When I, when we first started talking about this, one of the first things that came up was how do we research this? How do we create a research framework that doesn't do harm? Because we know that research historically has created harm, even in its attempts to try and understand harm. And I know that you work, you know, in the healthcare industry. So I would love to hear your thoughts on how do we collect data and really capture what's going on that you know, within public health, when we think about chronic disease, we think about even things like anti-fat stigma, right? And how that impacts the healthcare outcomes of people who are fat. How, how do we, what are your thoughts on how we do this kind of research? Because that's where it starts, right? We use research to inform public health practice and public health policy. So how do we do this work? Right. No, I think that's the crux of the question, right? So, and, and that the first thing I think is language, right? We have to know how to talk about yeah. it. So we did this disclaimer in the last episode, but I think it's important here. When we talk about fat stigma, we use the word fat as a value neutral descriptor. So like short or tall. And fat is being reclaimed in a lot of fat activists and fat justice spaces as the neutral descriptor that it really should be. Mm-hmm. Obese and overweight are concepts that rely on the BMI or body mass index as a legitimate spectrum of weight health. So as we've mentioned, we reject the legitimacy of the BMI model, and we will use terms within the BMI like obese and overweight to discuss healthcare and public health because those are the terms that are used in that space, but we're not going to use them to describe people. Right. When we describe people, we're going to rely on just, again, reclaiming fat as a body descriptor uh, that is neutral of the values that are implicit in the BMI. Right. And we're going to talk about how language is important as we think about research, right? And, and policy and how we use uh, these things to create categories that may be harmful or may not be. So, yeah. In terms of research, there's a lot out there. And real quick, we just want to do a disclaimer here about the science. Yeah. So this podcast, Lynn's and I sitting in a room hanging out, is not a lit review, right? We are not doing a full research overview and we're not here to debate the legitimacy of any specific peer-reviewed journal. What we are going to take as given in this conversation are two points. One, the causal relationship between fatness and poor health. What we are going to take for granted in this conversation are two points. One, the causal relationship between fatness and poor health is not as clear-cut as most folks think. And two, the negative health consequences of fat stigma and anti-fatness are underappreciated and underrepresented in the research. Yep, definitely. And, I, and we are starting to see a lot more uh, research on those two things, right? And actually, that really is a great segue into talking about having this conversation about how do we do this research? Because we know historically that there has been, interestingly enough, research controversy within how the, between that link between, you know, there has been controversy between the link of 
fatness to health. If you all have listened to maintenance phase, you will recognize this particular study. It was the 2004 study that came out from the CDC about claiming that obesity was killing 400,000 Americans a year and basically saying obesity is the number one cause of death or one of the leading causes of death in the United States. That's right. And we didn't want to go into a whole big lit review, but we did want to lay out a little bit of the timeline of the kind of creation of Mm -hmm. the, quote, obesity epidemic in the United States because it was as much a political movement Mm -hmm. as it was a scientific, quote, discovery. So as Lindsay mentioned, the kind of obesity epidemic, quote unquote, is generally attributed to a CDC report published in JAMA, the Journal of of the American Medical Association, in March 2004, which claimed that obesity was, quote, killing 400,000 Americans a year, making it America's, quote, number one preventable death surpassing tobacco. So they published that and health administrators went absolutely nuts. Congress, HHS, public health practitioners, the media, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Like it everybody was, lost their damn minds. Yeah. It was the parade of images and video of headless fat people walking and just existing. Yeah. Walking away from the camera in like malls and shit. Yes. Absolutely terrible. Almost immediately after it was published, people started reviewing the research and the methodology of the report. And as they were doing that, it became apparent that there was a lot of dissent actually, and a lot of criticism of the methodology that was used by May, 2004, people were already publishing reports about the failings of the methodology used in the report. And some researchers, even including folks from within the CDC, argued that the report was published not because of its sound analysis, but rather its compatibility with new anti-obesity rhetoric within the government and public health policy. Right. And if you think about the kind of messaging that has come out that is in line with this kind of study, it's all personal responsibility kind of things, right? So of course it's like, well, look, we don't have to do anything about the systems that cause people to become quote unquote obese. We can just say, look at all these people and look at what it's doing. And, you know, fat people are the problem. Interestingly enough, I recently was reading a excerpt from um, Audrey Gordon's book. And she talked about one of the researchers from the CDC who who came out and said, you know, I took a look at this study and it it's flawed. And here are the reasons why. And this person, uh, Catherine Flegel, she got eviscerated Oof. by other public health folks, specifically uh, Dr. Willett from the Harvard School of Public Health. I mean, essentially, I mean, she was she almost lost her job over this. She came out with her own article in 2005 and she was so badly treated after her article came out. She didn't do another press or media until 2021. Whoa. That's what's kind of interesting about this, right? Because especially as public health practitioners, we all really look to the CDC to provide us with unbiased, objective data, right? I mean... I do some contract work for the CDC and the amount of clearance that you Mm. have to go through in order to release a tweet (laughs) is insane. So you can imagine the amount of clearance that that a paper has to go through, you know, to to be released for like the MMWR, you know, or any other publication that the, the CDC puts out. It's very stringent. 
in a way it's surprising. And, and you mentioned this obviously earlier that something like this with such a, a flawed methodology came out. But again, the CDC is a political agency as well. We saw this during the pandemic, right? The CDC was essentially muzzled for, you know, putting out any kind of information about the vaccine that was, you know, that could be even perceived as political or going against the political ideology of the administration, you know, that was in power. So, you know, you couple that with just societal anti-fat stigma and bias, and you've got a recipe for, you know, just, again, reinforcing and enhancing a system of harm that honestly most people don't necessarily see and or don't realize that they are consistently contributing to. I think it's really important that we we talk about this particular study because we still hear this. I mean, I still hear this. That article that you talked about from The um, Economist, yeah. they talk about how obesity is the number one killer yep. you know, for uh, preventable disease. Yeah. Again, this t- also ties back into the argument that's used, quote unquote, care about obese people. We care about fat people because it's a health issue. It's right. a public health that's issue. Right. And then when you start to actually realize this is a straw man's argument and the foundation's pretty shaky, then you can start to peel away those layers and see the anti-fat bias underneath. Yeah. I mean, there are several things going on here, Mm -hmm. right? Like, you can't take the read. I mean, you you can redact parts of the research, but yeah. you can't like untie the tide, right? right. Like you can't the, put the genie back in the bottle. Yeah, that's right. right. Like it was done, and I, you know, there was clearly a sociopolitical appetite, right, to vilify fat bodies in a very mainstream way at that point. Yeah, right. Like it it, it matched with what what you know, people grabbed onto it because there was something there already, right? It's like, that didn't create anti-fat stigma. What it did, it legitimize it within the, you know, kind of medical industrial complex and gave people a, like a straw man, right? Like some sort of research to point to say, see this, our, our discomfort with fat bodies is actually our discomfort with, with people being unhealthy, with treating themselves in an unhealthy way. Yeah. And now we can sidestep all of the kind of systemic factors that go into why bodies look the way that they do, right? And we can reduce this again to like our golden bullet, which we fucking love in a free ass country, which is like personal choice, right? Yeah, like exactly forever and a day, you just have to like make better decisions. And yep. we as a society are not at all accountable yeah. for creating situations in which the things that you are deciding between could lead to different outcomes. Exactly. Exactly. So I think the other piece of this, and you, and you brought this up, was that there was not only the sociopolitical appetite for this, but think about that time in our history. This is just when social media is becoming mm. a thing. I went to college. I started as a freshman in 2005, and that's when I got on Facebook. Mm. So imagine the complete snowball of not only are we now doubling down and saying that we've got research to support our anti-fat bias and the stigma that's around that, but now we can amplify that and reinforce all of the Western, you know, like just completely 
unrealistic beauty standards that we love to put on people as a way to fuel consumerism, right. <laughs> you know, like you think about that. I just saw a study that came out that says that, you know, eating disorders among teens has significantly increased. And part of that is due to social media. I know there's a ton of like studies out there that are like X, Y, Z, has been exacerbated among teens because of social media. Like social media isn't the silver bullet that has made like shit really bad for teens, but it's certainly a, a contributor. So I don't want to be that person who's like, if we just got rid of Instagram, teens would be so much better <laughs> off. It's like the same shit with video games, right? Like yeah, it's, it's like get off my lawn vibe, right? <laughs> and, and that's not what I'm saying, but I will say that, you know, you think about the amount that we are, in front of screens and, and the amount of ads and just complete the amount of pretending that's out there. Like I think about me right now and who I am on social media. And for so many of us, it's not the same. Right. So I just think about like that study coming out and then Facebook launching, right. especially on college campuses. Yeah. So what do we do about this? Yeah. I mean, it, it's interesting. I mean, there's a lot to learn, right? Yeah. Because I think back, you were in undergrad. I was in grad school in 2008, right? Yeah. So a little after that. But when I was in grad school, in public health grad school, public health as an epidemic to my like little squishy nubile brain was fascinating, mm-hmm. right? Because, you know, public health teaches you a lot of things like how we can think of non- pathological phenomenon mm-hmm. as epidemics, yeah. right? So vi- gun violence, right? Yeah. And taking a, a kind of biomedical model and applying it to social phenomenon and applying tools of epidemiology, right? a well-researched field, right? To ideally affect change in, in, in a social space. And that to me was fascinating. It's like right. one of the first things I really fell in love with with public health is like, oh my gosh, there's so many tools and, and I can understand systems differently mm-hmm. through this, through this lens. Now, the problem was of course that like epidemic, like the, the obesity epidemic was bullshit, right. right? It was a gross oversimplification of many systems of harm manifesting. So I, you know, so there is a lot to learn from that. And I think, so we are public health practitioners in very different spaces, mm-hmm. right? I work in a healthcare system where we do a lot of kind of equity-centered justice work and how to redesign systems of care mm-hmm. to create more equitable outcomes. Yeah. And and we're really specific about, you know, lots of people work in equity and justice, and there are a lot of different ways to do that. So this isn't a, our way is the best way, but how we define working in equity is we take a population health perspective. So we look at population-level outcomes, and we disaggregate them by different demographics that we think have Social meaning. So give an example of a population-level outcome. A population-level outcome is infant mortality. This is the one we talk about a lot, right? So infant mortality, for folks who don't know, is one of the highest-level metrics we have for understanding how well a society does at caring for its citizens. Birthing people and babies are some of the most vulnerable folks we have. They're the people who rely on familial and community and social systems of care. It's a, it's a, it's a, it is a intersection of so many things. That's exactly Healthcare, right. community, social support, food. genetics, food, violence, all of it. Yep. So it's a great, 
indicator, right? Like you just said, for the health of a community. That's exactly right. And we tend to think of infant mortality as being a function of technical capacity in the healthcare space, which it really is not. Uh, So when we look at infant mortality rate, we tend to look at it at the population level. So among the OECD nations, which are kind of the developed nations within which the United States tends to rank itself on how good we're doing, we can look at infant mortality rate as a nation. When we talk about equity and justice work, we take that infant mortality rate and we disaggregate it. We break it up based on race. So we'll say, okay, the infant mortality rate. So in my town in Jackson, Michigan, the infant mortality rate is around, I think, seven right now. So that's seven. So the rate is given per 1,000 live births. Mm -hmm. And the number, the infant mortality rate, is the number of those live births who will die before their first birthday. Right. Right. So an infant mortality rate of seven means that of 1,000 live births in Jackson, Michigan, seven of those babies will pass before their first birthday. But when you break, and that's the population level number, when you break that down by race, you see a tremendous difference. White babies, the infant mortality rate is around 4.7. Okay. Among black babies, it's around 15, 15 to 16. Which is incredible. Which is an enormous I mean, it's almost tragedy. four times. Yes, it, it is. It's a tremendous tragedy. And it's one of the ways from, from again, the, the work that we do, mm-hmm. it, it alerts us to where we need to work. Yeah. Right. Like this is a place where we need to close that gap because we need black babies to live. Yeah. Right. And so when we talk about justice work, what we typically do, that's the model is we look at we, we try to find population level data and then disaggregate it to see are there specific types of people, specific populations that are experiencing worth outcomes because that indicates there are systemic barriers, right? right? That there are systems at harm at play because melanin actually is not a lethal substance to babies. Melanin does not kill babies, but race in the United States can kill black babies. And it does. And we see that repeatedly in many different communities. Right. So how do we think about that in terms of fatness? That's the thing, right? Like, that's what's been so hard. That is what is challenging for me right now in this. Because as a public health practitioner working in a very kind of clinical healthcare Mm -hmm. systems space, I don't know that that model works, right? Like, I don't actually know how to identify, how to go through that process. Right. I don't know how to identify fat people as a demographic right. and figure out and not even figure out, we know that they get poorer care. Yeah. We know that anecdotally, like I, we can actually just use what people say and take it as evidence. Right. Qualitative right? data is credible data. <laughs> it actually turns out. Yeah. That yeah. what people say happens to their bodies is a thing we can believe. Yeah. So we know actually that fat people have a much harder time accessing quality care. Right. right. But the normal tools we have, right. Identify the population measure their health outcomes compared to not the population and use that as a foundation to organize and and design kind of interventions. Right. That is really hard. One, because if we reject the BMI as a legitimate source of information, of of true information about people's health, which we do, then the normal, the easy thing would be like, great, like look at quality of care and run a regression based on BMI. Right. Right. And see if like quality of care decreases as BMI goes up. Right. But how do you do that if you reject a BMI? Right. I mean, as we're talking about this, it just makes me think about 
the way that BMI is being used is as a health screening tool, right? I think what you're getting at is until we can figure out a way for people to be identified as fat and whatever subcategories that might be, because we know that language is powerful, we might have to use BMI as a way to just identify people, not necessarily to screen them for health, right? Like you might be categorized as overweight in the BMI, but that's not necessarily indicative of your health. That's just a way for us to better understand your experiences as a obese or overweight person as identified in the medical field, right? And, and until, until we figure out how to do this without using the BMI, right? Like I, that would be off the dome, what, you know, how I would do it. And I think that, you know, there's probably other researchers in this field that are struggling with the same thing, right? Like how do we use something to identify folks who we know, like we just said, are having, or who are experiencing stigma without using the same tools that perpetuate that stigma, right? Yeah. Cause I don't, I don't know how to build, like what we certainly can do right now is mine EH electronic health records. Yeah. Right. And do everything I just said. We can look at cost utilization and we can do the same kinds of things we do, you know, with a lot of people who we think aren't seeking care. Right. Right. Because there are barriers like queer folks, they don't appear in the data. So we have tools to kind of address that. If you think of research, right? Like what's the point of research? Research as a tool to understand the relationships between things so that we can do things better, right? right. Like real basic shit, right? Yeah. Like if we think something's causing harm, we should do that less and we should figure out what causes not harm and do right. that more. Right. Like, this right. Is, this is master's talk over here. Yeah. Right. <laughs> to me, I always think of like research, especially in equity and justice spaces with healthcare providers and insurance payers as a learning tool. Mm-hmm. You're kind of like, using a very colonized research mode of knowing, mm-hmm. right? To communicate truths that are inherently disruptive, mm-hmm. right? Which is like, hey, fat people deserve care that isn't about their weight. Yeah. So to take research and use the BMI while trying to teach healthcare providers that the BMI is garbage seems fraught with peril. And it actually seems unique to this specific space. There are a lot of ways that we think about, like, to me in my head, obviously I'm a queer fat person, but like, I think of how working with queer folks has some relationship, right? right? Between some of the, yeah. some of, right? Because a lot of yeah. people aren't disclosing. They don't want right. to disclose. Like, right. so it's hard to do that same model that we do with race to identify these queer people and run these regressions and da 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 However, when it comes to working in the fat space, it is different to say we are trying to deconstruct the categories of fatness. Nobody's saying we're trying to, well, not many folks are saying we're trying to deconstruct the categories of queerness. We might be talking shit amongst ourselves about how the letters line up, but in general, we don't want to not be identified as queer people in whatever language, right? right? Whereas fat people and the fat, the, the fat liberation movement, the language is challenging in that way. Yeah, but and I but I wonder if that part of that challenge right now is because this is such a this has become more mainstream and so we're still learning how to talk about this because you just mentioned queerness. Sure. Queer as a word used to not be it wasn't 
taken back, right, by that community. Sure. I think about even race, how we talk about race. We know that race is a social construct, and we know that, like, we are all human, but we still use race as a way to categorize people to understand disparity. I think we reject that race is anything biological, has anything to do with health, but we recognize that this is how our society has categorized people in a way that has created disparities. And so therefore, we might have to continue to use BMI not to perpetuate this mythology around the causal relationship between health and weight, but as a way to categorize people until we figure out what's a better way to do that within fatness. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's a lesser of two evils. At the end of the day, I would still rather know how to show up to my job (laughs) and and live in solidarity (laughs) with fat people who are experiencing harm in my healthcare system today. Yeah. And if that's the way, you know, to do it, it it, it just, it it seems substantively different though. And I think your point is absolutely valid. It's really hard. I'm still really struggling with how to put this shit together. I am too. So... Let's talk about policy. Let's talk about policy. Let's talk about you and me. No. Two things, two examples I want to bring up about this. One is, is weight a protected class when we talk about workplace and other kinds of discrimination? Okay. The other thing I want to talk about is sin taxes, not sin tax. No, like that's grammar. Yeah. I want to talk about sugar or soda taxes. So we're dabbling a, with economic policy. Ooh. Talk dirty to me. Going back to discrimination, right? We've talked a lot about anti-fat stigma on this podcast. And so how do we protect people from discrimination that's based in anti-fatness stigma? Mm-hmm. If y'all didn't know. There's only one state in the United States that has weight as a protected class, and that is the Great Lakes State, Michigan. America's high five! Which, funny enough, Megan and I are both from. Yes. (laughs) There are a few cities that have that as a protected class, including San Francisco, Madison, Wisconsin, and Urbana, Illinois. I would just like to point out that two of those cities are in the Midwest. Yep. Go Midwest. That's right. That's woefully, woefully few places where, where fat people can actually say, hey, I think I've been discriminated against because of my weight. And you might be asking yourself, does that even happen? And if you are asking yourself, you clearly haven't really been listening to this entire thing because well, of course it happens. People who are fat are constantly asked, well, can you do that work? Is that going to be too much? Right, right. If they try to ask for accommodations... They get, you know, basically told, why would I accommodate that? It's your personal choice to be fat. Right. We really need to do more to protect folks from anti-fatness stigma, especially when we know that the almost half of all Americans are considered overweight or obese. I mean, that's that according to the BMI or, you know, using BMI as a measurement, which, of course, we reject. But if we're even if we're looking at that, I mean, that's half of the United States. Twenty five percent of Americans have a diagnosed disability. You think about numbers like that juxtaposed together. I mean, we have way more people that could potentially be discriminated against, which we know discrimination is happening. 
I just kind of wanted to point that out in case you didn't know that. The other thing I wanted to talk about as an interesting paradox is these, essentially they're like excise taxes, right? You think about like, we attach an additional tax to things like tobacco. These are things that we're trying to get people to stop using and we use taxes as a financial penalty to get them to stop doing it. We also clearly use it to fund tobacco prevention programs as well <laughs> on top of the master settlement that we got. Yeah. Only if your product actually kills people uh, and you uh, actually know right. it and then suppress that information <laughs> and advertise at schools. Yeah. Oh, whoops. Whoops. <laughs> yeah. That. We've seen this in other places, right? Uh, the one place that really sticks out in my mind uh, around like the soda tax, right, which is really a tax on sugar is New York City, right? New York passed a soda tax and it was essentially like if there's so much sugar, you know, or your soda is this big, there's this many liters or ounces or whatever, we're adding an additional tax. The impetus for that was, well, if we do this, we hopefully will be able to stop people or deter people from buying more sugar the motivator was, well, we're trying to prevent obesity. Right. The interesting thing about this whole thing was the backlash that people had against these sugar and soda taxes. There were so many op-eds. And actually, funny enough, I will never forget seeing Jon Stewart on The Daily Show talk mm. about the soda tax happening in New York, saying, this is crazy. People should be able to do what they want. If I want a actual child size diet Coke from McDonald's, if I want a bucket of Coke, I'm going to get it <laughs> because it's my right as an American or whatever, right? People, they want their freedom until it comes to people who are fat. And then it's somehow a personal choice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I want to be able to drink Coke, as much Coke as I want. But you know what? That fat person, they're continuing to make bad choices, and I think they should be regulated, whether that's through increased insurance premiums. And I don't think they should be a protected class. So I find this to be a really interesting paradox. What do you think, Megan? Well, you know, talking about economic policy, that's my heart <laughs> pounding. <laughs> I mean, I, I just, I, I think there's a lot of things going on. I don't know. I am not opposed in general to using elasticity of demand as a mm -hmm. way to create a society in which it's easier to be healthy. Right. Like I, in my mind, right. Like I'm fine with adding additional taxes to tobacco because we right. have so much data for decades on how fucking bad tobacco is for people, right. right? I'm fine with that. I think tobacco is an interesting parallel to this as I'm sort of thinking hmm. about it, right? We know tobacco's bad. We continue to allow this industry to flourish regardless. We have tackled tobacco using a variety of policy mechanisms. Sure. We have regulated marketing. Yep. We have increased excise taxes on tobacco. We've regulated who has access to tobacco. We've regulated the types of tobacco that are available, right? We no longer sell candy-flavored cigarettes. Yeah. And oh that wasn't God, until the Obama those. administration, which a lot of people don't know that. The only flavored cigarette that they allow is menthol. 
And menthol's coming under attack recently. Yes, as it should, because menthol is awful. Because it <laughs> it gives you the sense of, you know, that you're... It gives you the sense that the smoke in your in your throat is cool because the menthol feels cool. So it actually cool makes you smoke. inhale more deeply. It sounds like a Yankee candle. Well, cool, cool smoke. But cool is an actual brand of cigarettes. <laughs> menthol <laughs> cigarettes, Megan. Wow, yeah, sorry. No, get back to work no it's actually really crazy that you thought about that. So anyway, so I think about, you know, tobacco is this preventable disease that according to that 20, 2004 study was usurped by obesity, right? But tobacco is a product that is produced that we know has no actual health benefits, causes carcinogens, is linked to nine different cancers, and is a scourge to the public health community. And we've known this for over 50 years. Yeah. And like, fine, if you want to use it, use it. We're now communicating right to the point that like, grown ass people who understand the harm can use it. Right. Fucking go ahead. Right. We're going to tax it. I think you're right, though. The difference is there is no safe use of tobacco. Right. There are safe and reasonable uses of fucking Fago or whatever pop tickles your fancy. (laughs) Right. Right. Well, exactly. Right. So eating and consuming things, regardless of their nutritional value, which nutritional value is, I think, something that we could have an entire episode on. But Hmm. we think about like, again, sugar Our bodies need sugar to be able to create energy to keep us going and to create cells, right? Like the mitochondria use sugar. I'm trusting you completely on this because this sounds way too sciencey for me. Oh, well. But I believe mitochondria. Yeah. I love talking about mitochondria. Anyway, (laughs) (laughs) I'm not kidding either. It's really nerdy. But anyway, you know, so I think about that, right? So we're, so we have a product that we absolutely know is terrible and bad for you and honestly should be completely outlawed in my opinion, but then you have sugar, right? Like sugar that is in almost anything we eat, right? Because we need glucose in order for us to produce energy. And yet we're, we are trying to regulate them as if they were equal. Yeah. And I think there's also, so talking about policy, yes, right. That's where we started. The thing also with pop Mm -hmm. is soda for you non Midwesterners, (laughs) soda or Coke for, I think only people who live in Texas. So something like that, people who say Coke, whatever. Is that you're not act? It is not a sugar tax. It is a corn syrup tax, yeah. which is artificially cheap because of the federal subsidies in corn production. Right. So there is an economic argument that taxes on things like soda, things that are high quote sugar, are actually just returning yeah. a true market value to what is an artificially cheap sweetened product. So Megan, are you saying that maybe we should do away with corn subsidies instead of punishing people for (laughs) drinking soda? I mean, I think there is an argument (laughs) to why that there is, if we're talking about policy, when it comes to obesity, you're exactly right. Like that's the crux of it is, is there are policies that put choices that put options in front of people. Mm -hmm. And so it is not true. And this is another fundamental truth of public health. Everybody gets to choose, but the options that people are choosing between are curated yes. by overlapping sociopolitical mechanisms. And we, we, and, and we know that, which is why not having tobacco billboards by schools works, 
why not having candy flavored cigarettes is that a thing? Yeah. yeah why that works that's a fucking terrible idea there we, we know these things we know that there are policies that do not rely on people being forced to make quote good decisions yes across multiple bullshit options yeah right that that can actually create population level outcomes and work more towards a space that is just. You said population outcomes. It's almost like we've come completely full circle. Why are we so good at this? Wow. I'm really glad that we were able to tie that together, right? So Because we know that research informs policy, mm-hmm. and policy creates outcomes that are then research. It's this wonderful cycle. It we sure continue is. to just do research, make policy, reevaluate, do research. It's just, it's amazing. It is. And there is something I think to be said before we wrap up about beginning this episode of thinking, okay, how do we focus in on healthcare and outcomes within healthcare Mm -hmm. and acknowledge that the BMI probably needs to be, if not deconstructed, at least decentralized from our understanding of quote risk factors in poor outcomes and wanting to you know, my using the traditional tools that I've been using to work Mm -hmm. in, in justice and equity and applying them to BMI and transitioning that a bit to like, okay, well, we literally are talking about systems, right? Tax policy. That's where we got to. I didn't even do that. Like you let us into a tax (laughs) conversation and I am thrilled about it. (laughs) And there is something to be said where this might be a population outcome that is best served talking at policy level, food justice levels, right? Like maybe there really is something substantially different and we can learn from that. Yes. And start talking about things that make people healthy. Yeah. In a way that is truly not anti-fat, right? That is pro-health instead of continually doing the like this, not that kind of framework of like choose a banana instead of a pop tart or the fuck kind of branding we do around that i'm not sure i mean choose a menthol cigarette not a gummy beer yeah mint is literally a plant Lindsay. it's like a vegetarian cigarette it's organic it's an organic yeah green cigarette sure it's from the earth no menthol is menthol is different i think it's not it's not a mint i think it's like mint i think it's all made up it's all a lie it's all a lie yeah, and there's no sugar in pop. <laughs> there's corn syrup. <laughs> there's corn in pop. I, yeah, and and maybe that's <laughs> maybe that's why why weight discrimination is only, or I should say, weight is a protected class only in a couple places in the Midwest. That grow a lot of corn. Yeah, we grew up like three cornfields apart. Yeah, you're right. I grew up in the middle of one of them. Yeah, so did I. <laughs> well, well, Megan. This has been a great talk, and I'm glad that we were able to discuss the macro of anti-fat bias and stigma, and I'm really looking forward to us talking about how do we work at the individual level. Yeah. I mean, my, my work, you, you are very good at the individual level. I work way more at that aggregate system yeah. space, so I'm, I'm very happy to have talked about this because I think at the, I want to work at this level. I want to understand how to take human-centered theory yeah and apply it not at scale that's that's just such a stupid way to say things these days but to apply it to systems right to take human-centered theory and apply it to systems i appreciate you walking down that path to me i appreciate you getting into economics with me and 
next time we'll definitely talk about really focusing on how to engage with individual people one-on-one and apply some of these learnings to just be better individual practitioners. Yeah. And if you like this podcast and you like what we talk about, awesome. We also really like what we talk about. Yep. You can listen to more of our episodes if you subscribe to Viral on whatever podcast catcher you use, whether that's Apple, Spotify, Google, whatever. Please make sure you rate and review so that people can find us, tell your friends, tell your family. You can tell your employer, but, you know, that's totally up to you. But we appreciate... Don't tell my employer. Don't tell anybody's employer on the show. But we hope that you really enjoy our podcast and check us out at viral-pod.com. Shout out to Dream State Productions for doing our sound engineering, to Mr. Michael Conrad for production, and to our studio cat, Tofu. Tofu. Love you. Definitely love that. That's right. That little nugget. All right. See you next time. Peace.